Hey y'all, and welcome to episode 14 of Texla True Crime, the podcast covering homicides, missing people, and anything else that catches my eye in my home states of Texas and Louisiana. I do try to watch my language, but a swear may slip out now and again. The sources that I use to write this episode are listed in a Google Doc that I will link to in the show notes. The subject matter is definitely not suitable for children. And as many times I do, I have my wonderful Schauser mix, Sparky, in the room. He is making his little doggy noises. And so if you hear that, that's just him. This is his house. I just live here and pay for the things. I am Lisa, your host, and stay tuned after the episode to hear a promo from Apple for the Teacher. This podcast covers crimes committed in schools. It's a very interesting angle from which to examine true crime. Today's episode was suggested by Shannon from the Lessons from Lifetime podcast, which is honestly one of my favorite podcasts, and I totally fangirled whenever she tagged me on Instagram to suggest this case. Also, I am a gigantic awkward nerd. Fun times. I know initially on social media, I said that I would skip this week and release this episode on November 2nd. But as I was writing it, I realized it is a great case to cover in two parts. So today we are going to talk about the victims of the serial killer, Derek Todd Lee. Next week, I'll go over how the police identified him as the killer, what happened to lead to his arrest, his trial, his appeal, all that side of things. His victims deserve their own episode, so I wanted to share their stories first. I'm going to warn you that this is going to be a particularly brutal episode. There are several victims and many endured sexual assault. I will go into as little detail as possible on the assault, but if you are especially sensitive to the subject of sexual assault, I would suggest skipping this episode. So let's get into it. Victims were mainly from the Baton Rouge area. I know we've kind of been all around Baton Rouge, but we haven't had an episode that took place in the capital city itself. Baton Rouge, which is French for red stick, and I'll tell you how that came to be in just a second, is first and foremost home to the Tigers of Louisiana State University, otherwise known as LSU. So go Tigers! Whenever settlers came to the area, they noticed a red stick in the ground that was kind of marking the boundary between the area where different Native American tribes had land. So they just started referring to the area as a Baton Rouge. Okay, so remember when we talked about the Atchafalaya Basin? It's that big swampy area, kind of western central Louisiana with the big old long bridge that you have to drive over. Well, Baton Rouge is just a bit to the east of the end of the basin, just across the Mississippi River. There's a large bridge that goes over the Mississippi that is steep and honestly a little terrifying to drive over sometimes. But as tall as it is, the governor at the time it was constructed, Huey P. Long, made sure it wasn't tall enough to let the giant oil tankers through. And so because of this, Baton Rouge had to be the farthest north that these giant tankers could go So they had to stop and do their business in Baton Rouge instead of going further upriver. So in addition to the petrochemical industry, Baton Rouge is a very popular location to film movies. 
Captain Marvel and Pitch Perfect are just two examples of many. The entire Baton Rouge metropolitan area has about 834,000 people, with the city itself having a population of a little over 227,000 people. So let's go ahead and get into the meat of today's episode. His first victim, or his first known victim, was Randy Mabrewer. She was born on March 18, 1970, and in April of 1998, she was 28 years old and worked at Synergy Healthcare. She had been divorced since 1996 and lived with her son, Michael, her three-year-old who was the absolute center of her life. And although she and Michael's father were no longer married, they got along well and shared custody of Michael very amicably. So on April 18th, she and Michael went to go rent a video, and they got home about 7 p.m. that evening. She lived in a house on Saul Avenue in Zachary, Louisiana. Zachary is a small town with about 11,000 people, about 16 miles north of the city of Baton Rouge. Randy and Michael spent the evening watching Disney movies. It would be their last night together. The next day, her son Michael wandered over to a neighbor's house where another young boy lived. Kathy Morris, the neighbor, walked over to Randy's house to make sure it was okay with her that the boys played. She was mildly concerned whenever Michael said, Mommy's lost. I can't find her. But not all that concerned. Maybe they were just playing hide and seek. She knew Randy would never leave Michael alone. Kathy walked into the house, saw some blood on the kitchen floor, but just thought maybe she had cut herself while cooking. Then she walked into the living room where more blood was on the floor. Finally, she walked into the bedroom where copious amounts of blood were on the bed. Kathy took Michael and had her husband call the police. In vain, they all tried to find Randy. The house showed no signs of forced entry, but it had clearly been the site of a massive struggle. Police investigated her ex-husband, Michael Sr., her other admirers, Nothing came of it. Forensic evidence painted a picture of what had happened in that house while Michael slept. Randy had most likely been raped, beaten, and stabbed. Her body has never been found. Little Michael is now 24 years old, and I hope that one day he will be able to lay his mom at rest. The next victim is Gina Wilson-Green. She was 41 years old in September of 2001. She worked as both a nurse and an office manager for the Home Infusion Network. And my best guess is that is one of those services that administers chemotherapy or other medicines requiring IV administration over a long period of time. I guess it's kind of like a specialized home health service. Gina was born on December 14th of 1959 in Natchez, Mississippi. She was described by her ex-husband Mark as outgoing, vivacious, strong, opinionated, full of life, selfless. That description pops up consistently whenever people are talking about who Gina was. She and Mark had been married for 10 years but they remained good friends even after their split, even though they didn't have kids together. Mark also told the station WAFB9 that Gina's BMW was her baby. He will remember her as a small-town girl who lived big 
and he will never stop loving her. In the middle of 2001, as the country was reeling from the September 11th attacks, Gina was experiencing some personal terror. She thought that she was being watched, and being a woman living alone, she took several precautions. Her house had an alarm. She kept pepper spray near each of her windows. Her doors were always locked in the craftsman-style home in which she lived near the LSU campus. It wasn't enough. Her boss and friend, Greg LeBlanc, went to her home around noon after several hours passed in which she did not answer her phone, show up to work, or return his phone calls. When he got to her house, he looked for the spare key that she usually kept under the flower pot on her patio. It wasn't there, but one of the house doors was unlocked. He walked in, calling out for Gina and receiving no response. He then looked into her bedroom, and on September 24, 2001, the outgoing, vivacious, strong, opinionated, full-of-life Gina was found dead in her home. Greg knew she was gone as soon as he touched her cold, stiff hand. He immediately contacted the authorities, and the coroner determined that she had been... uh, Uh, vaginally and anally raped, and was killed by strangulation. Her purse and cell phone were missing. The phone was located in an alley elsewhere in Baton Rouge several weeks later. Ex-husband Mark thought that maybe a painter that they'd had trouble with when they were married was somebody worth looking into. In fact, just before her murder, they had been in the court with the painter. Mark himself was quickly cleared, and they were able to fairly quickly clear the painter as well. Her case would remain unsolved for three years. In 2002, 21-year-old Gerilyn DeSoto was a brand new graduate of LSU. She'd come to Baton Rouge from her hometown of Addis, a town about 3,000 people to the southwest of the state capital. She was hoping to be accepted into the prestigious physical therapy program at LSU for her graduate degree. She had a job working in the account services department at the school and had many, many friends. She also had a husband. Darren DeSoto and Gerilyn did not have a storybook marriage. In fact, she complained so much about him to friends that they became irritated that she wasn't willing to leave him, even when he allegedly stabbed her in the leg with a fork. So her home life wasn't all that great. But according to friends... Otherwise, Gerilyn was a cheerful young woman looking forward to her bright future. In fact, on January 14th, 2002, she had a job interview lined up for 2 p.m. She spent part of the morning at the university working and spoke with Darren around 10.30. At 11.41, one of her professors opened an email from Gerilyn. It was full of thanks for all of the advice and guidance that she received from him as she worked to pursue her dream of becoming an occupational therapist. This was the last known communication of Gerilyn DeSoto. Her husband Darren worked long hours, and he was the kind of husband that always wanted to know where she was, who she was with, what she would be cooking that evening. You know the type. So when a co-worker teased him at about 4.30 in the afternoon, saying that he and Gerilyn must be on the outs because they'd not been on the phone all day like usual, Darren figured, oh, she's just still at her job interview and she'll be checking in soon. But nothing. He left work around 6.15, 
and even stopped and tried to call Geraldine from a convenience store on his way home. Nothing. Even more alarmed now, he arrived home to their trailer house around 7 o'clock that evening. Geraldine's car was there, but it was parked in the middle of the driveway like she wasn't expecting to be home long. When she was in for the night and expecting Darren, she would park to the side so that they could each park in the driveway. So this made Darren even more alarmed. And when he walked into the home, he saw a horrific scene. Gerilyn lay dead in a pool of blood with the couple's shotgun next to her body. He initially thought that she had taken her own life, rushed to her and lifted her shirt, looking for any evidence of a shotgun blast. There wasn't any. However, there were multiple stab wounds, including a slash across her throat. She'd been beaten so violently that her skull was fractured. Some sources say that she was raped, some don't mention it, but it does seem to be this subhuman's M.O. to violate his victim sexually, so I tend to go with the sources who say that she had been assaulted. What investigators determined was that she had gone for the shotgun in order to fight off her attacker, but it was unloaded, and therefore that's why it was found near her, which definitely could lead someone at first glance to think that she had committed suicide. And with the state of the marriage, it is no surprise that the police immediately focused on Darren as their prime suspect. Over a year, they questioned him, put him through polygraphs, which unfortunately for him, he never passed. He'd been in the company of his co-workers all day throughout the time of the murder, yet they were relentless in their pursuit of Darren as Geraldine's killer. But of course, the truth would come out eventually on who her true killer was. In May of 2002, Charlotte Murray Pace was poised to become one of the youngest students ever to earn a Master's of Business Administration from LSU. She was only 21, an age when most college students aren't even through their undergrad studies yet. I know I wasn't at 21. Born in 1979 in Rolling Fork, Mississippi, Charlotte was a spitfire from the beginning. At age six, she rode the bus with her eight-year-old brother and his friend. As it happens all too often, there was a bully on the bus. He picked on her brother, John, his friend, Matthew, and then he made a big mistake. He picked on Charlotte. When they got off the bus that day, the fearless little girl formed her hand into a tiny fist and popped that little brat one. He didn't pick on her again. She attended Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi, before moving to Baton Rouge to pursue her MBA in internal auditing. She was fierce. She was smart. She was determined. On May 31st, 2002, she was at her new apartment. She and her roommate had only lived there for two days. And ironically, the house she had moved from was three doors down from where Gina Wilson Green had been killed the year before. Charlotte was happy that day. She was working at, with the LSU Alumni Association for the time being, but would be moving to Atlanta later that summer to start a job at the big accounting firm of Deloitte & Touche. After work that morning, she washed her new-to-her 1999 BMW and went home to wait for her roommate, Rebecca. She and Rebecca were heading to Alexandria for the weekend to attend the wedding of a former roommate. I'm sure Rebecca was thinking about a weekend of fun with friends when she got home at 2 p.m. But everything changed in the time it took her to open the door. 
She found Charlotte laying near her bed, nearly naked. Rebecca saw dozens of small holes to her body and observed that her throat had been cut. The copious amounts of blood told the story of the horror that had transpired. Blood was in the kitchen, in the hall leading to the bedroom. In the bedroom itself, blood was on the furniture, the floor, and it soaked the bed. Charlotte, the fierce little girl at the bus stop, had fought for her life with everything she had. Rebecca couldn't find the girl's cordless phone, so she used her cell to call 911 and stopped a passing police car. Police determined that she had likely seriously injured her attacker in the struggle for her life, so good for you. The coroner determined that she had been raped, beaten, and had suffered more than 80 stab wounds. 80. Some were made with a flat-bladed screwdriver, some with a knife. He'd used a clothes iron to bludgeon her. No suspects were immediately named, but investigators were able to collect a lot of forensic evidence thanks to the fierce battle that Charlotte had with the attacker. These DNA samples were relatively quickly found to be consistent with samples from the other unsolved rape murders in the area, but it didn't come in time to save four more women from the clutches of this monster. Okay, guys. Spoiler alert. This next victim, she lives. We've got a lot more terrible things to go through, but I am so happy to report that there is one good news ending in this destruction is the only word I can think of. So on July 9th, 2002, Diane Alexander opened her door to find a man asking for directions. She lived with her family in a trailer house in Brobridge, Louisiana. And Brobridge is quite a bit west of Baton Rouge on the other side of the Atchafalaya Basin. A fun Texla fact, Brobridge is also where my family would stop when we were going between New Orleans and Southeast Texas before we moved permanently over to Texas. Anyway, so the man at Diane Alexander's door was a neatly dressed African-American man with a thin mustache and a fresh haircut. He said that he was supposed to be doing some work for a family in the area by the name of Montgomery. He wondered if she might know where they live. She didn't, so he politely asked her if he could borrow a phone book and a phone. She handed him the book and the phone and shut the door behind him, leaving him outside. A few minutes later, she opened the door to get her stuff back. The man heard the gospel music that was playing on Diane's radio and shared with her that he sang with the gospel choir. What a nice, clean-cut young man. She chatted a bit more with the nice man, and he asked if maybe her husband might know where the Montgomery family lived. Diane told him that her husband was not home. After that, things changed very quickly. He forced his way into her home. He struck her multiple times and attempted to rape her, but was unable to maintain an erection. He then used a telephone cord from her own home to begin strangling her. Her life was spared when her son arrived home unexpectedly, scaring the attacker away. In 2014, Diane wrote a book talking about her ordeal and the divine intervention that she feels spared her that awful day. She was also instrumental in identifying Derek Todd Lee as the killer. Three days later, on July 12, 2002, Pam Kennemore was abducted from her Baton Rouge home. 
Pam owned and operated an antique store in Denham Springs, which is a town just a bit to the east of Baton Rouge. According to her obituary, Pam was born in 1958 in New Orleans, where she lived in Metairie before relocating to Baton Rouge. She was a wife and a mother, and had also worked as a realtor, a mortgage representative, and she volunteered frequently at her church, Parkview Baptist. That would be where her funeral was held. Four days after her disappearance, her body was found near Whiskey Bay, an area in the Atchafalaya Basin popular with people who have things to hide. July in Louisiana, as you might imagine, is miserably hot and humid. Even after just four days, decomposition had already progressed to the point that she had to be identified by dental records. Even so, even so, the coroner was able to determine that she had been beaten, raped, and had her throat slashed. The telephone cord from Diane Alexander's home was found near her body. A silver toe ring that Pam always wore was missing, believed to be taken as a trophy by the sick bastard who took her life. All of these victims' stories detail the utter lack of respect for humanity that the killer possesses. This victim just absolutely shatters my heart. Ternisha Denae Colomb was born on April 9, 1979 in Lafayette, Louisiana. Lafayette is in western Louisiana, deep in Cajun country. Her family called her Denae. She loved to read and dreamed of traveling. She also loved serving her country. She had served two years in the Army and was planning on joining the Marines next. Her mother, Verna, died in April of 2002, right around Denae's 23rd birthday. Seven months later, tragedy would strike the Colomb family once again. On November 21st of 2002, Denae was visiting her mother's grave. The grieving daughter was abducted from the cemetery in Scott, Louisiana, which is a small town in Lafayette Parish. Her abandoned car was found the next day in Grand Coteau, prompting her family to report her missing. On November 24th, she was found in a wooded area by a hunter, 20 miles from where her car was found. Her pants were missing and were later found near her body. She had been sexually assaulted, and she had been beaten to death. Blood evidence indicated that she had been dragged to her hiding place. She was survived by her brother, Sterling Cologne Jr., and her father, Sterling Sr. She now shares eternity with her mother. I know everything I've lined out so far is incontrovertible proof that Derek Todd Lee was an absolute monster. I don't know how that much evil can reside in a person. But reading about Danae being taken while spending time at her mother's grave just really pushes it over the line for me. The next victim was 26-year-old LSU graduate Carrie Lynn Yoder. She was born on November 6, 1976 in Highland, New York. She majored in biological sciences at LSU and planned to pursue her doctorate. According to her family, Carrie was a woman who marched to her own drummer, loved to travel, and knew how to protect herself. On March 3, 2003, Carrie Lynn Yoder went grocery shopping with her boyfriend at Winn-Dixie. He left her at her apartment around 5 or 5.15, and police are confident that she remained in her apartment until 7.45 or so that evening, but they weren't able to put together an exact timeline between that evening and March 5th when her boyfriend reported her missing. 
Police opined that if she had been abducted, he must have entered through a window or sweet-talked her into letting him into the apartment. Her parents, who were living in the Tampa, Florida area, were notified of her disappearance. They would not have to wait terribly long to learn Carrie's fate. On March 13th, a crawfisherman found her floating face down, partially clothed, very near the area of Whiskey Bay where Pam Kennemore had been discarded. She had been beaten, raped, and died of asphyxiation. Police theorized that she had been thrown from the top of the bridge. She is the last of Derek Todd Lee's known victims. LSU awarded her a posthumous doctoral degree five years after her death, which is when Carrie would have finished that program. Her parents accepted the degree and created a memorial scholarship named for their daughter. I cannot even begin to imagine the pain that these families face. After I go over Lee's background, the investigation that led to his arrest, his trial, etc. next week, I'm going to list all of the positive things that these amazing people have done in memory of their loved ones. More and more, I am in awe of the strength that victims' families have when they're going through the most horrific, tragic time in their lives. Normally, this is where I would share a heartwarming story or something funny, but today I just want to reread the names of the victims. Don't forget them. Randy Mabrur, Gina Wilson-Green, Gerilyn DeSoto, Charlotte Murray Pace, Diane Alexander, Pam Kennemore, Danae Colomb, and Carrie Lynn Yoder. If you would like to get in touch with me, I'm on Facebook at Lisa Texla, Instagram at Texla True Crime Pod, Twitter at Texla True Crime, and email at TexlaTrueCrimePod at gmail.com. Remember to stick around for a promo from Apple for the Teacher. Leave the world a little bit better than you found it today. And always, always, always watch out for motorcycles. Bye, y'all. Hello, everyone. Let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. You will hear tragic and shocking stories that I have uncovered in my own profession. You'll hear about murder, abduction, hijack, misconduct, student disappearance suicide, kidnap and ransom, and much, much more. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. So join me as I present People Behaving Badly, The Bad Apples. Looking forward to seeing you soon, but until then, remember to be a good apple.